The most important recognition I've made is that I'm nothing other than an idea I have about myself at any particular moment, um, and therefore I shouldn't be so hung up or fixated about the self, uh, this David Mickey character. Um, and that's an enormously liberating thing for me to discover, and it's something that I try to share with as many people as possible, because everyone else can find it enormously liberating. Welcome to the Humans of Perth podcast. My name is Jason. Each month, we bring an interview with some of the intriguing people met in the city of Perth in Western Australia. David Mickey is an author of many books, including the one he's well known for, The Dalai Lama's Cat. He was kind enough to share with me his life story about growing up in Zimbabwe and eventually finding fulfillment in helping others through his books on spirituality. My name is David Mickey. I'm originally from Zimbabwe and Africa. Both my parents are from Scotland and they met in Scotland um, and at the time, which is sort of post Second World War, the UK economy was in pretty poor shape and my father being fairly adventurous thought, what about going out and exploring more of the empire? And he'd been posted to Hong Kong after the Second World War and so he, he wasn't averse to exploring new things and so he decided there's this advertisement for a job in um, Salisbury, Rhodesia and he applied for it, so a firm called Guthrie's which provided engineering products. And so he got the job and he went out and my mother followed him about six months later and they got married and they had three boys uh, and I'm number two. One of my most enduring memories of my dad is him sitting in his study, typing away in his typewriter, uh, all these books about geography of, of Southern Africa. He sold engineering products, but he actually, after a while, realized that his true calling was in education. So he trained as a teacher and he basically was a geography teacher for many years in Rhodesia. And in fact, he then started writing geography textbooks because there were very few texts about the geography of Southern Africa when he got there. And uh, I think we do learn a lot from observation and from uh, modeling. You know, we model the behaviors of those around us. And so from my own point of view, um, sitting and writing in your study seemed to be quite a normal thing that men did. Um, and perhaps that's what uh, brought me into writing myself and perhaps that was quite a powerful influence I think uh, when I was small was seeing my dad take himself off and writing. He seemed to get quite a lot of pleasure out of it um, and so I associated uh, the isolation and the writing with, uh, with a sense of satisfaction. Well my father interestingly enough um, was discussing an upcoming book that he'd written called Map Reading for Zimbabweans um, and in it um, he had a, uh, a map and then an, an aerial photograph of what the map represented so that kids could see how things looked in a kind of map context. And he and the various people at Longman's as publisher were discussing what might make a good um, aerial scene for a map. And at the time there was much talk, this is in 1983, there was much talk of a coup d'etat against the Mugabe government which is quite unpopular. My father with his normal sense of humour suggested Cecil Square in the middle of Salisbury um, now Cecil Square is associated, of course, with colonial times and um, somebody in Long, Longman's firm said, you know, um, the government might not like it, which my father, of course, was well aware of. Um, but because of all the talk of coup d'etats, etc., that was going on, my father pursued it by saying, well, if this government doesn't like it, maybe the next one will. And of course, he intended this completely as a joke. The very next day, he was called into the minister's office which is just along the corridor from his own office, because by now he's quite senior in the Ministry of Education. And he said, Mr. Mickey, you have been making counter-revolutionary statements. And it turned out that his fiancée worked for Longmans. <laughs> and at this point, 
This was like the crystallizing moment for my father because all sorts of other things had been going on that showed that the whole system was becoming so politicized. It was no longer about education, it was about advancing the very narrow interests of one party. That was back in 1983 and the same party is in power. And it's a sad fact that basically um, across Africa when uh, new liberation movements have tried to take over government, um, they basically don't have the skills. Um, and so we see it doesn't matter whether you look at Zambia, Mozambique, Zimbabwe or currently South Africa, um, there is this kind of difficult period of transition uh, which Zimbabwe is still going through. And so my parents just decided, and uh, my mother in particular had always been quite homesick about Scotland. Um, my dad was very worried about the economics and for that reason they left uh, and they um, sold the house and went back to Scotland uh, taking with them what they could. My father by that stage was in his mid-50s and he'd spent 30 years or more working for the Rhodesian government. Um, and after 30 years, you'd expect you know, a reasonable kind of pension. And initially, when he, after he turned 65, he did get a good pension from the government. But I'll never forget him telling me one day, because um, he was, I, I was living in London at the time, and he said, I got a strange call from the bank this week. He called me in because the cheque from uh, the Rhodesian government had arrived, or the Zimbabwean government by that point, had arrived, and they had a problem with it. Uh, and my father couldn't imagine what that problem could be. Uh, so he went into the bank, uh, all he knew, of course, was that his, his pension had become worth less and less as every month passed because the, 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 the Zimbabwean dollar was devaluing. And they said, Mr. Mickey, we've got this problem. Um, the value of your um, the cheque is actually uh, $3, um, and it costs us $3.50 to put it, put it in your account what you want us to do with it. But he was one of the lucky ones because he left in his mid-50s and he had the chance to kind of rebuild some of his finance before he finally retired. There are many people, sadly, in Zimbabwe, uh, both of both black and white, who've um, found themselves penniless in their old age um, because of the fact that, you know, it's hyperinflation. I've got a, a note in my wallet for $100 trillion, um, and that was uh, one of the final banknotes ever printed in Zimbabwe. Um, and, you know, you couldn't buy a cup of coffee with it. People used to walk around with bricks of money in their backpacks and they went to the shops. It was absurd. It was literally, it literally was more effective to, you know, use uh, $100 bills as, as toilet paper than to buy toilet paper. My father and I always had a fairly distant relationship um, growing up. Uh, you know, I think he was very involved in his work as a teacher uh, and as a writer. Um, so I wouldn't say that we were particularly close. Yeah, I feel I was quite, I was probably a lot closer to my mum than my dad. I think she, um, she and I were on the same page when it came to music. She loved music um, and she really encouraged me in my creative pursuits, um, both musical and writing. Because from quite a young age, I'd also been interested in writing. In fact, at the age of seven, um, I was, I had a teacher called Mrs. Ames. We always remember the names of our favourite teachers. And she was one of my favourites. and. She used to have creative writing, writing classes every Friday, and one Friday she set the task of writing something about witches and wizards and demons and anything kind of spooky. Um, and I was totally inspired by the session, and I wrote a poem about a witch, and I can still remember it started on a dark, dark night in the pale moonlight, a warlock and a witch cast a spell. That was the first four lines of it. Um, and Mrs. Ames was very impressed with my output, and so much so that she asked me to read it to the assembled kindergarten children. So they had to get a little chair for me to stand on um, because I was very short. Um, and so I started out and read my poem and everyone was then told they should clap. <laughs> and I sometimes wonder 
whether that had an impact on me later in life in terms of associating um, you know, uh, social approbation and, and acclaim uh, with writing. Was there a connection in that? I don't know. Yeah, I didn't enjoy being a teenager at all um, because I really didn't fit in. In Rhodesia uh, at the time, it was very much a drinking, rugby playing sort of culture. Um, and, uh, you know, rugby players in the first team of every school were kind of very much idolised. And I had absolutely zero interest in it. It wasn't that I disliked rugby, it's just that I, I just wasn't interested in it. I was interested in playing the flute. So I was this like a feet little sensitive child <laughs> in a society where it was all about being beefy and muscular and, and you know, being in the first team. Um, however, um, I, can't, I, was, I wasn't really particularly bullied. Um, I was left alone, I think. And um, I think I just retreated into a kind of sort of slightly superior snobbish view of the world and I played my flute in, in the various orchestras because I did reasonably well. I played in the Salisbury City Orchestra and then uh, finally in the National Symphony Orchestra. Um, so I did, you know, um, have my own thing. I also used to um, compose jingles uh, and a local advertising agency used to get me to write jingles. So I wrote jingles for Five Roses Tea and Colgate Dental Cream and all kinds of stuff like that, um, which I had a lot of fun doing. When I got to lower sixth, which is, um, I was 17, um, some of my um, colleagues uh, were uh, really aggrieved about the fact that I never performed, played, uh, ran in the cross-country running, because I just hated it. My, my colouring is all wrong for that sort of thing anyway. I'm, you know, pale and red-headed, etc. Um, and so I used to basically just not attend, even though you were supposed to, it was compulsory. And so they decided they'd finally get their revenge on me once they became prefects and they could put me down on their list. And if you didn't attend like two out of three cross-country um, rehearsal sessions, um, you, got, you got sent to the deputy headmaster for a caning because, you know, corporal punishment was normal in our school. Um, and so we had this new prime minister, this new uh, uh, deputy head in, at the school. Uh, it came from Amtali, a boys' school called Doug Walty. Um, and he was an unknown force. And it was the first term, cross-country. Um, I missed my three. I thought I've got no intention of doing this. I was actually rehearsing very busily for the Ice but on the flute. And so I sent to Mr. Walty's office to explain myself. And so he said, sit down, boy. What are you doing? Explain yourself. A very Scottish accent. And I said, well, actually, I just don't have time to go to cross-country because I'm busy practicing for the Ice He said, what instrument do you play? And I said, I play the flute. I'm, I'm participating in the free class and the concerto class and the some other class, I can't remember. Um, and uh, I said, yeah, it's, it's, and he said, well, you know, when are you performing exactly? And I told him in six weeks time, the deadline's going. And I said, you know, it's all going quite well, but at the moment, my own problem is I don't actually have anyone to accompany me on the piano. So he said, well, I'll accompany you. <laughs> so all talk of, of being caned <laughs> went out the window because Fortunately for me, my lucky day, Doug Waldy was a great fan of classical music. And so the prefects, my kind of, uh, who thought they were going to see me come weeping out of the deputy headmaster's office, were sadly disillusioned to discover that I'd be let off all for further cross-country for the rest of my days at Oriel Boys. <laughs> but once they realised that Doug Waldy and I had uh, had a, uh, you know, a kind of special relationship in the sense that he was my accompanist as well as the deputy headmaster, I think they realised I was pretty untouchable. My mother would like me to be a bank manager and um, uh, <laughs> my parents told me they were deeply suspicious um, of, of things like psychology and journalism and politics. And so um, those are precisely the subjects I chose <laughs> when, I, when I went to university. <laughs>
In the end, I, I decided to major in English and psychology, which I have no regrets about because I feel they're a fairly good foundation for where I went next in terms of my career, both with public relations and in terms of writing and, and understanding the, the nature of mind. And I certainly uh, was very uh, um, depressed um, after, at the end of my, my very first relationship, um, uh, when uh, the girl involved decided to break it off. And my parents, being button-down Scottish people, not used to dealing with emotions, weren't sure what to do with me. So they sent me off to see a psychologist. Um, and the psychologist used cognitive behaviour therapy um, to treat me. And I'd ironically just been studying that at university in psychology. So I already had some kind of um, conceptual understanding of it, but I'd never been in the, in the patient's seat, so to speak. He said to me, you know, um, David, why are you depressed? And I said, well, because I've been dumped by my girlfriend. And he said, well, um, not all boys who are dumped by their girlfriends feel depressed. They're certainly not as depressed as you are. And I had to agree with them on that because I could vividly remember a couple of guys and the res that I was at in university being terribly pleased when they were dumped by their girlfriends because they, <laughs> they could now go out and party and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And they didn't have the same view at all. So Bob Hooper asked me to write a list of all the ways in which being dumped uh, made me feel depressed. And I thought this was a kind of weird thing. Um, but I started writing down a whole list of things um, like, you know, I'll never be happy without Justine and... Uh, I'll never meet anyone like Justine again, and so forth. Um, and so when I went round to see him the next time, he said, David, do you have that list? Uh, yes, I did. So I gave him the list and he said, right, David. He said, you'll never meet anyone like Justine again. Yeah. How old are you? 21. How many girls were you dating before we met Justine? Oh, I don't know, a couple. So if you were to date like two or three a year for the next 10 years, that'd be about 30 girls. Don't you think there's a chance that you might before the age of 13? And so one by one, he went through all my the, the reasons and made me realise how crazy they were. So yeah, that was um, that was my first experience of, um, of feeling really uh, emotionally shattered and having been given the tools to kind of deal with it. In my late 20s, um, by then I'd written about, I think six books. Um, from, from my very first book was I wrote when I was about um, 18. Um, I wrote a book in six weeks called Those Who Dare. Um, and it was a boy's own thriller. Um, and I tried to get it published uh, without any success. Um, and then subsequently I wrote a book called 21, uh, uh, all about being 21, a sort of coming age of age story, and then a book called Afterglow, and then uh, I, I've written, I can't even remember all the titles of the books I wrote, but I tried, was trying to get them published, and I found that I just couldn't, um, and I just felt I'm completely out of touch with what publishers and agents want, and so I should actually be living in London or New York, because that's where the publishing world happens. So I decided um, to move to the UK in 1988, um, to see whether I could advance my, uh, my career as a writer. And so I got myself a job once again, working for a large uh, water company, which is going through privatization in the UK, uh, at the same time as uh, seeking an agent and just trying to get to groups of what publishers really wanted. I was just determined, <laughs> I was determined I wasn't gonna let them get me. I actually collected rejection letters and had them framed in some beautiful frames, you know, the old wooden frames with brass corners. Um, of all the, my, my most favourite rejection letters, one of which was from a publisher, I can still remember it said, no, 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 this will not, simply will not do. <laughs> um, but nevertheless, um, I um, went overseas and uh, was working, as I say, initially for a water company, then in a PR agency, where I was so stressed and so busy, I just didn't have time to do writing. And so my writing sort of output started to come to a, a, a halt. 
Um, I also became very, very stressed out, so much so that I started getting rashes, um, which I initially thought were ant bites, but then when the ant bites extend not only from my ankles but to my wrists and back, etc., my back was covered in hives one day. I realized I had some, something was going on, so I went off to see a doctor and he said, you're suffering from some form of allergy or intolerance, um, I'm going to prescribe some antihistamine tablets and every time you feel itchy just take one of these. And so I did and it worked very effectively, no more rashes. But I thought I can't walk around with a little bottle of pills in my pocket waiting to get itchy, you know, it just didn't seem very sustainable. Uh, so uh, I thought there must be a better way to deal with this and a flyer arrived on my doormat one day from a naturopath uh, claiming to be able to help with intolerances and allergies and so forth. And I was quite skeptical uh, at that time about complementary health practitioners, but I thought, well, I've got nothing to, to lose apart from, you know, 20 pounds or whatever. So off I went to see this person who, unlike my doctor, actually went through everything I ate and drank on a daily basis and pointed out that 12 cups of coffee, sorry, five cups of coffee a day is maybe not a, a good thing to do. And in fact, I do have a caffeine intolerance. But she also said, you are systemically stressed and the best thing you can do is to meditate, learn to meditate. Um, to deal with this for 10 minutes a morning. So that's what got me into meditation. So I thought, you know, I'd, I'd learned a bit about meditation. I'd, I'd, well, I knew that it existed in rudiments of it when I did psychology, but I'd never tried to meditate and never had sufficient motivation. Um, so I basically sat in our little flat in the loft, which is directly underneath the flight path to Heathrow Airport. Uh, so every 30 seconds, there'd be a low rumble of another jet. Um, thinking, I can't kid myself, you know, I'm not the Dalai Lama, I'm not some Zen master. And I can't do this stuff, but I'll give it a try for a couple of months. So I did, and I just literally did breath counting, counting my breaths in cycles of four. And I knew within a few weeks that it was working because I basically had a really, really bad day. And um, midway through the day, I won't go through all the details, but midway through I asked myself, why am I being so angry? And I realized that I'd actually missed out meditating for three days in a row. Um, that I made some excuse, you know, I'm too tired or stay in bed longer or whatever the case may be. And I realized that I basically, without without being aware of it, when you meditate, you build up this kind of um, insulation, if you like, you're, you're better equipped to dealing with stress. And in fact, um, what, I would, what I discovered for myself, I reaffirmed years later when I read Shanti Deva, who's a Buddhist sage, who said, I can't cover the world with leather to avoid stepping on thorns, but I can wear leather on the soles of my feet. Um, so, you know, you can't control reality, but you can control the way you experience reality. She had a crowd of boys standing around her, um, basically, she was entertaining them and they were all, you know, seemed to be uh, in, uh, in competition for her affection. She's, she's just a very, very, um, she's a very lively, vivacious person and when people meet her, they tend to be drawn to her. And I just thought, yeah, she's fabulous. Uh, and we just happened to walk into a kitchen at the same time at a party in London and we just uh, immediately hit it off. We became good friends at that point, but nothing more. Um, and then she often refers jokingly to my drink and dial syndrome, which is basically that um, <clears throat> in the evenings in London, this is back in the days of pre-Skype, etc. Um, she could always tell who I was speaking to when she came home from work, um, because if I had one gin and tonic, I'd be on the phone to somebody in Africa and if I had two, I'd be on the phone to somebody in America. And if I had three, I'd be on the phone to someone in Australia. <laughs> and she reckoned that I had a three gin and tonic night one night when she'd returned to Australia, to Perth, and said, um, 
you know, if you're ever, if you ever come back to London, uh, you're welcome to come and stay at my flat. And she subsequently um, got invited by her previous employer to come back to London. And so she did come to stay at my flat. And it was during that visit that um, things moved on. I think we just had a very um, happy evening out uh, at a local restaurant. Yeah, and one thing led to the other. I think you know when there's something going on between you and another person, uh, whether it's, uh, you know, whatever the age of person, whatever the gender of the person, you know when there's some sort of special connection there. I think it was about a year and a half and the whole thing became very um, focused um, because Australians uh, only have a certain amount of time they're allowed to work abroad. Uh, I think it's two years currently and it was the case then. Um, and so I had a very simple choice. Um, either I married her, being a British passport holder, that would, that would be uh, very easy for her to stay or um, I would have to say goodbye to her. I guess I always thought, I, I never saw myself either being married or having children. It just wasn't part of my plan for my life. Um, so, um, but on the other hand, nor did I want to lose January. So I'd actually phoned a friend in Zimbabwe without the benefit of any gins and tonics <laughs> and had a conversation with him and talked it through. And he basically said, you know, you should go for it. Don't have any hesitation, just do it. So. I called her, I went round to her place and collected her and came back and um, yeah, proposed to her in the flat and then we went out and had a very nice uh, meal at a, at a restaurant in London. She was very um, uh, excited and tearful and as we were both, you know, it was one of those moments. It was a Friday afternoon, I took a phone call uh, from this particular editor and um, my wife was actually out uh, at the time her mother was visiting, uh, but when she came back into the flat, I told her, and um, she knew how big a deal this was for me. And so she went off immediately and bought a bottle of champagne. And uh, we celebrated that night. And the very next day, um, she took me down to Burlington Arcade in Piccadilly, uh, where there's a Mont Blanc pen shop. And I'd always promised myself I'd buy a Mont Blanc Meisterstuck Le Grand uh, if I got a publication deal. Um, I could have at any point have bought one, but to me it was symbolically important. So um, that's what we did, and I still have it, it's my signing pen. Uh, another thing that people are you know, not aware of is that you don't actually make very much money writing books. Um, all, all authors across the board uh, generally will get 10% of the cover price of any, of any book. So if you buy a $20 book from Demix, the author's going to get two books, um, for example. Um, and it's the same whether you come from the UK or USA or Australia. So um, even if a book sells very, very well by publishing standards, um, you're unlikely, it's unlikely to be a life-changing uh, event. I moved back to Perth by the time the other books came up. There is such a long gestation period in publishing that the time between being commissioned to write a book and the book arrive, actually appearing on the shelves typically can be anything up to two years. I had the kind of very disillusioning and, um, but ultimately very useful experience of um, having the, the, the plug pulled on my thrillers by my publisher uh, without any kind of prior warning. I felt devastated because I realized quickly that if they weren't happy publishing me, then nobody else was going to, um, because publishers, the first thing they do is they look at your sales track record and see how many units you've moved. Uh, it's quite a kind of, you know, calculating process. And so um, I was find myself in a kind of real predicament because here I was sitting in Perth on the other side of the world from where it all happened, um, having the, you know, my career as a thriller writer brought to a, an abrupt halt.
Fortunately, by then, I'd been going to uh, Buddhist classes. I started to learn a bit about the nature of reality. Sometimes uh, what appears to be a bad thing can happen to you, but it's actually uh, a blessing in disguise. And so I thought, well, I'll just continue doing some PR work. Um, I'll, I won't form any particular view on writing going forward, and I'll just see what comes up. And over the following years, uh, by which I mean the next couple of years, I suppose, in talking to various people enthusiastically about Buddhism. So I thought, well, why don't I have a crack at writing a kind of introductory book on Tibetan Buddhism? And my motivation for it is purely to try and explain these ideas to people and to integrate my own life story in, uh, with that too, to make it a more personal story. So that was the connection, the genesis of Buddhism for Busy People, which is the first non-fiction book um, that I wrote in this area. Uh, it was published by a local publisher. Once again, I decided I'm not going to try and push any doors that are not partly ajar. And I, I found this publishing company through a mutual friend. Um, they were happy to take it on. And paradoxically, it sold far more copies than any of my thrillers, um, even though it was written for completely different intentions. Um, and that was the start of my kind of um, my journey, if you like, in the mind-body-spirit space, uh, at least as a published writer. I guess I've become a lot more protective of my father in his later years because um, the last thing my mother ever, ever said to me it was like the day before she drove to hospice and she died several days later. Um, and my, uh, January and I were in London and I spoke to my father on Tuesday and had a few words and I said I want to speak to mum and he said well she's not very well at the moment, she's not feeling very well and I said no I really want to speak to her, I haven't spoken for a long time and I had no inkling this would be the last conversation I had but we had a very short conversation just about how she was feeling and she just said to me come up to Scotland your father needs your help that was the last thing she ever said and um, I think that was so symptomatic of my mother she was always thinking about other people and um, so yeah we we flew up on the because I didn't know how bad she was but obviously when people go to hospices you have a fair inkling so we got the first tickets we could and we were up there within a couple of days I think we got on, on the Friday and uh, she died on Saturday. And um, yeah, I, um, I suppose since then, my father, like many of his generation, is temperamentally incapable of looking after himself. You know, my mum always did the stuff, you know, household stuff. And so he's had to take on a whole dimension of activity that is, uh, he's not used to and has no interest in. And so I've um, you know, been more involved in making sure that, you know, things do go okay and in particular latterly because you know he's now 85 he's really getting on um and yeah you do become more protective i think of your parents and, and you realize they're they're people you know until you're about 20 at least from my case i didn't recognize my parents were just people <laughs> you tend to think they're so somehow you have higher expectations um and you just realize you know he's an old man who's doing it tough and he needs all the help that he can get he's living in this isolated world he's lost most of his friends He's having to spend his time doing things he doesn't want to do and his body's starting to fail in him, as is his mind. And that's a horrible position to be in. So we do what we can from a distance and I try and get over as often as possible. Well, I suppose because I'm a Tibetan Buddhist and I you know, uh, completely uh, adhere to the principles that you know, we have a kind of um, ready-made um, meaning in life or purpose for life, which is to achieve enlightenment for the benefit of all living beings. Uh, that, is the, that is the motivation of all Tibetan Buddhists. And so that is my motivation. 
and um, it's unlikely that I'm going to achieve enlightenment in this lifetime. However, um, that's, that is our journey, that's what we're setting for ourselves as an objective. This piece was produced by me with sound composition done by Andrew Clark. Andrew is a local of Perth, and if you like his music, check out his website at andrewclarkcomposer.com. That's Clark with an E. And if you want to know more stories about the people of Perth, then check out humansofperth.tumblr.com. <laughs>